John 4, 4 through 26. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The word of the Lord. Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary who spent 40 years in India. He learned their language. He lived in their villages. He spent time hanging out with Vedic monks, learning all about their spiritual beliefs and practices. And he did all of this because he knew that they had a completely different way of understanding reality, and that if he was going to share his faith in Jesus with them, then he had to enter into their world and, and, and understand the way they viewed reality in order to communicate in a way that would make sense to them. 
Now, here's the really fascinating thing about his story. When Leslie Newbegin um, left England, it was 1936. Now, I was curious, so I did a little Google search. The most popular song in England in 1936 was Nellie Wallace, Let's Have a Tiddly at the Milk Bar. Forty years later, when Leslie Newbegin came back to England, it was Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols singing No Future for You or Me. Everything had changed. And one of the biggest things was this. In 1936, when he left England, he could have walked up to pretty much anybody in his own country and begun a conversation using words like God and sin and redemption. And and they would have had a shared understanding of what those words meant. Not only did they have the same vocabulary, they were all using the same dictionary. But 40 years later, when he came back, everything had changed. Those words were essentially meaningless in his own culture, and he realized that he was facing the same kinds of communication challenges in his own culture as he had faced when he was in India. Now, all these years later, those communication challenges have only gotten bigger. For many people in our culture today, not only does the gospel not make any sense, it's actually seen as harmful and destructive. So here's the question. If you're a Christian, how do you make sense of the gospel in a world in which the gospel doesn't make any sense or is even seen as violently oppressive? And if you are maybe exploring faith or maybe you're reevaluating or deconstructing your faith in Jesus or maybe you've actually rejected faith in Jesus. But if that's you, any of those things, here's the question for you. How do you know that the faith you are exploring or deconstructing or rejecting actually is the real gospel. You can't evaluate or reject something unless you understand what it really is. We're in a series called Public Faith, and we're looking uh, for several weeks at this encounter between Jesus and this woman that he meets at a well. How does Jesus help her understand who he is and what the gospel is? And, And what would it look like? What does that teach us to learn how to do the same thing in our culture. That's what we're looking at this week. And we're going to learn about this by seeing four steps that Jesus takes under the acronym PATH, P-A-T-H, which stands for presence, affirmation, truth, and hope. These are the four steps that Jesus takes. What does it show us about how we can take the same steps in the lives of the people around us, okay? So first, presence. One of my favorite parts about this story is right at the beginning. Jesus, it says, has to go from Judea, which is in the south, up to Galilee, which is in the north. And it says that in order to get there, he had to go through Samaria. Now, geographically, that actually was the shortest way. But as we've seen, because there were incredible social barriers back then, because Jews and Samaritans hated each other, Most Jews back then would have gone miles and miles out of their way to go around Samaria rather than through it. But this says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? It's because Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman and with her village. He had to go there to meet them. So when he shows up um, at the outskirts of the village, it says that Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, uh, sat down by the well. Now it was about noon. So when Jesus sits down at this well, 
Uh, he was waiting for this woman to show up. He intentionally puts himself in a place to be there for her when she shows up so that when she shows up, Jesus is already there. Instead of having an attitude that says, hey, I'm going to make people come to where I am, Jesus is constantly saying, I have to go where they are. Now, what is that? You may have heard of a little doctrine called the Incarnation. The Incarnation is a way of talking about uh, the fact that God uh, became a human being. He took on human flesh. In fact, that's what this word Incarnation means. It means in the flesh. God entered into our world. You know, traditional religion says, here's what you must do to get to God. You have to be a good person, live a good life, do the right thing, and if you do all that, then you will get to God. But the gospel is the exact opposite of, the, of that. The gospel doesn't say, here's what you must do to get close to God. The gospel says, here's what God has done to get close to you. He came to our neighborhood. He entered your world. He incarnated in our lives and in our world. But here's the really beautiful part of this story to me. We saw last week that, um, that this woman had had five husbands and that the man she's with right now was not her husband. And especially we saw last week that whatever the story with these five husbands was, whether they had all died or whether they had divorced her, maybe because she was barren and couldn't produce children, maybe some combination of those factors. We just don't know, so we shouldn't assume. But whatever the story with these five husbands is, one thing we do know is that this woman's story was one of incredible pain and loss. So that when Jesus shows up and she meets Jesus at this well, this is a person whose life in many ways is falling apart. And that's where Jesus meets her. Friends, here's the point. Sharing the gospel with others means incarnating in their lives. And especially it means being present for them when things fall apart. Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer in New York City, uh, he puts this very memorably. He says that every non-biblical worldview or philosophy or approach to life is like a suit of clothes that's too small for us. It doesn't fit which means that it's always pinching. It, it doesn't really fit who we are, our, our human nature. And sometimes if you move suddenly, it rips, which is really unnerving. Like, what was that? <laughs> Where was that? Uh-oh. Every non-biblical view of reality is like a suit of clothes that doesn't fit. Now, here's the thing. You realize that this is not just other than Christians. Even Christians, um, we all live in a world in which the default storyline says belief in God is just one of many options, not even the most plausible. Even if you're a Christian, we all feel the pinch of that, which means that all of us are constantly adopting beliefs and stories and narratives that are like a suit of clothes that are too small for us. They don't fit the reality of how we're built as creatures who are meant to know God and love God, so that when our lives fall apart, those beliefs, stories, and narratives fall apart. They can't hold us together. They pinch. They rip. Friends, here's the point. Sharing the gospel with others means, first of all, being present in their lives. It means that we incarnate in people's lives. Yes, we want to share the gospel with people, but it means first being present in their lives. It means showing up in their lives. It means asking them questions about their lives, listening to their stories, and especially it means being present for them when things fall apart. That's the first step Jesus takes here. He's present 
in people's lives. But the second step Jesus takes is affirmation. Um, the next thing that Jesus does in this story is he asks this woman for a drink. Now, this may seem like just a simple way to begin a conversation, but there's more going on here than just that. One of my professors in seminary was a man named Jerem Bars. He is a beautiful human being with a lovely British accent. One of the main things that he taught us in seminary is that when this woman, um, when Jesus asks her for a drink, it's an example of how Jesus was constantly affirming the worth, value, and dignity of everyone he met. He, he was constantly affirming them, saying, you have something beautiful and good to offer to the world. That's where Jesus begins. And, and so even though he's going to bring a critique and a correction at some point, of course he's going to do that. But Jesus doesn't begin there. He doesn't begin with her sin and her need for correction. He begins... Um, Almost always, Jesus began almost every encounter he had with people by affirming two huge things. We saw these last week. Jesus affirms that every human is sacred, and he affirms that every story is sacred. Every human has worth, value, and dignity, and every person's life, their story, is always going to reflect something about God's beauty and God's glory. They can't help but do that because every human being is created in the image of God. And even though that image in us is broken and defaced because of our rebellion against God, that even though the image is defaced, it's never erased. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Every non-biblical worldview or story or narrative is always going to have something about it that is going to reflect part of God's intention for humanity in the world. And one of the things we need to do is learn how to see that and affirm it. But it's not easy. So for instance, um, think about our culture wars today. It's human nature to demonize groups and belief systems that are different from ours. Um, many Christians, in fact, feel very compelled to, to talk about the culture or secular culture in a way that sounds like, ooh, the culture, it's evil, it's bad. We've got to reject that. We've got to stay away from that completely. Jesus is teaching us rather to begin with a different question by saying, hey, what's good here? What, what would the Bible actually affirm about this? And can we start there? So what would that look like today for us? Um, Tim Muehlhoff and Richard Langer are two professors at Biola University. They wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called Winsome Persuasion. I know the title is really small there. Uh, wonderful book called Winsome Persuasion. It's all about how to engage people in conversations uh, with people who have radically different beliefs from yours, and especially how to do that uh, with grace and kindness and equanimity and respect. One of the main things they talk about in this book is something called the sacred core. A sacred core is a set of beliefs and values that are cherished by a particular community. It's th those beliefs and values are sacred to that community. So, for instance... In our modern, Western, secular world, one of our sacred cores is something we could call the ideal of authenticity. The narrative of authenticity in our culture is something that says, you must be true to yourself, you must follow your heart, and the most important thing is that you would look inside of yourself, you would listen to your heart, you would listen to your desires, and then you would express your authentic self to the world around you. The ideal of authenticity. Now, there are a lot of critics 
of that ideal in our culture, people who would say, look, that's only narcissism, that's just self-absorption, self-obsession, we've got to reject that completely. Many Christians would say the same thing. They, they would say secular culture is too individualistic. We should reject it completely. But Jesus is teaching us to say, wait, hold up a second. What's the sacred core here? How does the Bible affirm it? And how can we do the same thing? So for instance, with this ideal of authenticity, one of the big parts of, of authenticity in our culture is this idea that we all have a moral responsibility to choose what we're going to make of our life. No one else can make that choice for you. You've been given gifts. You've been given... This is a huge responsibility. And this responsibility confers incredible dignity on every individual human being. You've been given gifts. You've been given a choice. You've been given a responsibility. What are you going to do with that? It's kind of like that line from one of Mary Oliver's most famous poems. She says, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. What are you going to do with that one wild and precious life you have? You realize, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or if you even realize it, that this idea, this ideal of authenticity, the responsibility, the dignity, the choice, is, is radically unique in the history of the world. Up until about 2,000 years ago, which means for most of human history, the, the world was dominated by the idea of fate. The world was dominated by this view of, of life in history that said life in history is a never-ending cycle of birth, suffering, death, wash, rinse, repeat. You see the, that idea in ancient Greek philosophy. You also see that idea not just in the ancient world, but continuing today in the East with the karmic cycle. And here's the thing about this idea. There's no changing the world. There's no changing the cycle of birth, suffering, and death. There's no changing your life. There's no changing the world. There's no progress possible in a framework like that. So where did our modern world get this ideal of authenticity, of, of the possibility of progress and changing your life? It comes from Jesus in the Bible. God told the Israelites, Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. Whenever Jesus said, whoever. And he said it all the time. It's a way of saying, you have a responsibility. You have a choice to make here. You've been given gifts. You've been given responsibility. You've been given a choice. What are you going to do with it? Who are you going to serve? What are you going to give your life to? What are you going to worship? What are you going to do with that one wild and precious life that you've been given? Every time in our culture, when we say things like, you have to be true to yourself, or you have to follow your heart. Those statements are like echoes of Jesus Christ saying, whoever, what are you going to do with your life? Friends, here's the point. We have to begin first by just being present in people's lives. But the next step is learning to affirm the things that we see in people's lives. It means learning to ask the question, what's their sacred core? What does the Bible say about this? How would the Bible affirm this? And how can I affirm it too? We take those first two steps and that leads us to the third step, which is truth. If we go back to Tim Keller's illustration about the suit of clothes that's too small, you know, every non-biblical worldview or story or narrative, yes, it has things about it that's always going to reflect God's intentions for the world and for humanity, but because it departs from a biblical view of reality, there's always going to be ways that it's going to let us down. It can't hold us together. It's going to pinch. 
It's going to rip. So if we go back to this story with the woman, Jesus begins by affirming her. Um, but then the next thing he does is they get into this painful conversation about, hey, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. And so the woman says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, this was actually one of the biggest spiritual controversies in their culture at that time. The question was, where's the real temple? Where's the real place of worship? Is it in Jerusalem or is it in Samaria? Now, many people have suggested that, that when this woman asks this question, that she's trying to change the subject away from her relationship history because she's just embarrassed. Other people, on the other hand, have suggested that, no, no, she's actually beginning to sense that Jesus is no ordinary human being. And so she actually is sincerely asking a question about one of the biggest theological topics of the day. Personally, I think both options are possible. We don't really know. But here's the important thing I want us to see about this. Jesus is using this as an opportunity to question her worldview and to challenge her whether her story of reality can really fulfill the deepest desires of her heart. If you take a look at the flow of the conversation here, Jesus begins by offering her living water. Living water is the life-giving presence of God overflowing in your life. And when Jesus says, you've had five husbands, but the man you're with now is not your husband, basically that's Jesus' way of saying that, hey, the only way you can receive the living water I'm offering you is for us to have a truthful conversation about all the places you've been looking for it up until now but can't really give it to you. So for this woman, it would have been relationships and romantic fulfillment. But when this woman turns around and, and comes back with her question and saying, hey, where's the right place to worship? Wh whatever she was trying to do, whatever... Um, um, she was doing, whether or not she was trying to change the subject. The important thing is what Jesus says right after that. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack in this statement, and we'll do that in just a bit. But for right now, here's the most important thing I want us to see. Jesus is using this as an opportunity to question her worldview and to challenge her about whether or not her story of reality can really fulfill all of the desires that she has in her life. He says, you worship what you do not know. He's challenging her. Can your story of reality really fulfill your desires in reality? It's a way of Jesus saying, hey, you have really wonderful, good things that you're seeking in life. These things reflect God's intentions for you and the world. But the things that you're trusting in, the things that you're worshiping, they don't really have the power to fulfill you and give you what they want. They can't really deliver. That's what's going on here. Now, what would a conversation like that look in our culture today? For instance, if we were going to go back to our ideal of authenticity and just continue to use that as a case study, we've just seen that's one of the biggest moral ideals in our culture. It's a sacred core for us. And we've also seen that there are ways that the Bible would affirm at least parts of that sacred core in our culture. But here's the question. If you have a non-biblical view of reality, what are the ways that that story fails to live up? What are the ways that story fails to deliver? Where does it pinch? Where does it rip? 
So for instance, what would an atheist story say about human beings and our desire for authenticity? If there is no God and this world is all there is, then at the end of the day, human beings really are nothing more than a bag of chemicals. And so our, we have these biologically evolved chemical reactions. We call them feelings. So we can have feelings about being authentic and special and unique, but, but really that's all they are, feelings. They're not real, not in the way we mean them. You worship what you do not know. Or what about Eastern stories of reality, like Buddhism or New Age spirituality? Those are increasingly influential stories, even in our culture. According to that story, your experience of being a unique, individual human being is really just an illusion. And, and your experience of being a self, what you call yourself, is really nothing more than a, a wave on the sand that one day is going to disappear back into the ocean. So where do we get this idea of individual authenticity from a story like that? You worship what you do not know. Now, understand something, please. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's impossible to create an account of human dignity and authenticity within any of those worldviews. Many people work really hard to do that. But here's the question that we should always be asking. Is your story of reality capable of matching your experience of reality? Which account actually makes best sense of our experience of reality. Friends, having these truthful kinds of conversations means that, that we have to have incredible respect and grace and humility when we're engaging people in these kinds of conversations because it means challenging their worldview, questioning their worldview. Do you see how important it is that we would take the first two steps in this path before we do that, that we would be present in people's lives, building relationship capital with them? Do you see how important it would be that we affirm what's already good and beautiful and true in their worldview and in their story before we start challenging and bringing a, a critique? You, in order to have these kinds of conversations, you need to have trust and relational capital. So we have to be present. We have to affirm before we bring truth into people's lives, okay? Now, all of that leads to the last step in this path. We've seen Jesus begins with presence, he goes next to affirmation, then he goes to truth, but lastly, Jesus gives hope. Because here's the question, the, the, really the big question. If none of these other stories of the world can really fulfill our deepest desires, what hope is there? Is there any story that can really fulfill our desires in this world? There is, but in order to to see it, we have to come back to that very perplexing statement that Jesus made that we saw just a bit ago. Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, as we said, this was a theological controversy in that day. There was a temple in Jerusalem. There was a temple in Samaria. And in the ancient world, the temple was the place where you went to worship God, to connect with God. That was the place where God would bless you and, and fulfill your desires. But the reason that was uh, possible was because the temple was also the place of sacrifice. Jesus here is basically saying the time is coming when all these earthly temples are going to be obsolete. Now, it would be really easy with our, to hear this with our... Um, enlightened, tolerant, inclusive cultural ears and think that Jesus is saying, oh, it doesn't matter who or what you worship. All religions basically teach the same thing. All paths ultimately lead to God. It would be easy to think that's what Jesus is saying, 
But actually, he's saying the opposite of that. That's not what he's saying at all. And really, the key to understanding this comes down to this word, time. Jesus says, a time is coming. Literally, that word time is hour. He says, an hour is coming. Dear woman, an hour is coming. What does that mean? What, what hour that's coming is Jesus talking about? In the Gospel of John, an hour is coming is a phrase that Jesus uses exclusively to refer to the hour of his death on the cross. Far from encouraging people to worship whoever or whatever, Jesus is saying that the gospel is the only story, that he is the only God, and that his death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can really fulfill the deepest desires of our heart and bring healing and renewal to the world. You realize, if you think about it, that there is no fulfillment of desire without sacrifice. So, for instance, our story of authenticity in our culture is a story that says, look, you have to be willing to sacrifice everything in order to follow your heart and be true to yourself. If that means sacrificing the expectations of society or sacrificing the demands of the community around you or the approval of your parents or even if it means sacrificing your family or even your children, if that's what it takes to come alive to your desires and express your authentic self to the world around you, then you owe it to yourself to do that. How many movies and books and TV shows does that script form the basic storyline? Too many to count. And yet the tragic irony is that when we give ourselves to that script, the less fulfilled we are, the more enslaved we become, and the more desperately we struggle with things like anxiety, depression, addiction, loneliness, suicide, and a whole host of other social ills. Friends, there is no fulfillment of desire without sacrifice, but the story of the gospel is the only story that, that, that fulfills our desires by saying that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, incarnated in this world and sacrificed himself on the cross. He gave his life for you in order to set you free from the things that enslave you, to fulfill your deepest desires, and to give you a meaning, a purpose, and something to live for infinitely bigger than any of your individual desires could ever do infinitely bigger than any of, of those individual desires that can never make us happy, but are always pinching. They're always ripping. Friends, if, if I could just summarize it like this for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just put this simply for us as we wrap up. First of all, get present in people's lives. Just be there for them. Secondly, get soaked in the gospel story. The only way you will be able to narrate the gospel story is if you're soaked in the story yourself. Soak yourself in scripture. Jesus did. Soak yourself in God's word. The only way we'll ever be able to narrate this story into other people's stories is if we're soaked in the story ourselves. But, but thirdly, we've got to learn how to say yes, no, yes, which is basically a summary of the whole sermon we just had. What does that mean? Yes, no, yes. Well, first, it means that we learn how to, to look at the stories of the people around us, the people in the world around us, and say this. First, yes, your story seeks really good things, things that reflect God's intention for humanity in the world. But no, your story can't possibly fulfill the things that you're really looking for. But here's the good news. Yes, the gospel story can. Yes, no, yes. Affirmation, truth, hope. Friends, if you're exploring faith, 
are, are you willing to allow the story of the gospel, this story, to challenge your story and, and invite you to consider the possibility that your story can't fulfill you, but that there, there really is a story that can? And if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, are you learning more and more how to narrate this kind of story into the lives of the people around you? Are you incarnating in their lives? Learn how to, how to get present in their lives. Learn how to ask them questions to say, hey, what's your story? That's a lot less, you know, confrontational than saying, what's your worldview? You know, what's your story? People love to share their stories. Ask them, listen to them. And, but as you listen to their story, learn how to enter into their story and to re-narrate a different story, a better story, the story of Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself for you in order to bring fulfillment into your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you um, that we, God, we understand our lives in this world in terms of story, and we thank you and praise you because it reflects the reality that you are the master storyteller. And that the story of this world truly is a story and that you are going somewhere with this story and that Jesus is the ultimate climax and fulfillment of the whole story. Father, we pray this morning uh, for, for everyone who's here this morning, Father, for those who are exploring faith or um, reevaluating faith or maybe even those who have rejected faith, Father, to... Um, to look at the story of the gospel and to understand it for what it really is. And, and I pray for those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus. Father, would you help us to get present in others' lives, to incarnate in their lives? Help us more and more to soak in, in the story of your gospel, to, um, to be saturated in it and shaped by it so that as we enter into the stories of the people around us, that we would be able to, to basically to say yes, no, but yes in their lives, to re-narrate the story of the gospel in their lives as we share Jesus with the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.